You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. After a couple of months away, I'm back in the Macrodose hot seat this Wednesday morning to bring you the key stories making the news, the analysis you need to make sense of them. It's great to be back on the regular show, and I'd like to say a big thank you to all of the guest hosts that took the reins while I was away. If you haven't had a chance to listen to those episodes with Dahlia Gabriel on Uber and the making of the on-demand city, Nick Dearden on Big Pharma, Yanis Varoufakis on Cloud Capital and Nick Mano on the housing crisis, I definitely recommend checking those out. And do send us your recommendations for guests you'd like to hear on future episodes. A big thank you also to Sarah Jaffe, who kickstarted our new series of roundtables with a fascinating discussion on the political economy of Palestine. We'll be back with more of those in the coming weeks and months, including a conversation I'm very much looking forward to with Raj Patel and Jason W. Moore, revisiting their book, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. That's a macrodose must-read. And finally, a warm welcome to all our new macrodose listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in, and especially to everyone who's subscribed over at patreon.com. This project to build independent, climate-focused economics media wouldn't be possible without your support. Right, on to today's show, and we'll be looking at first, with the Houthi attacks still disrupting shipping in the Red Sea, what are the economic consequences for the globe? And second, will President Biden finally crack down on food profiteers? I want to begin today's show by looking at the fallout from the ongoing attacks and disruption by Ansarallah, the Houthi movement, on Red Sea shipping moving through the Strait of Bab al-Mandab, off the coast of Yemen. These attacks have been well documented in recent weeks, as the Houthis attempt to disrupt the flow of trade through the Suez Canal with the stated intention of pressurising Israel, which is still undertaking its assault on the people of Gaza. Despite the best efforts of the United States and its fairly motley selection of allies, including the UK, the effect on global trade has been significant. And I think it's important to stress just how unprecedented this Red Sea action is. To significantly disrupt global trade and start to impose a blockade was previously thought to be something that only very well-armed states could do. You might think here of Napoleon's efforts to blockade Britain, for example, or the similar attempts by Germany during World War I. To mount a siege and a blockade, even against an exposed island, was incredibly resource-intensive and not especially likely to succeed. But in the current case, with relatively cheap weaponry, Ansarallah has been able to choke one of the world's most important trading routes, resulting in immediate global economic impacts. With the notable exceptions of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which themselves had both been at war with Yemen and the Houthis since 2014, a number of major world powers have lined up to try and force the Houthis into submission. But so far, the US-led coalition has been able to do little to stop these attacks, even with significant military escalations and a targeted bombing campaign. By forcing up the cost of transporting goods through the canal to unprofitable levels, the Houthis have managed to leverage their position in an unprecedented way. Figures from the United Nations Trade and Development Body, UNCTAD, show that overall shipping volumes through the Suez Canal have fallen by about two-fifths in the last two months. Container shipping has been worse affected, with weekly volumes falling by two-thirds since the crisis began just before Christmas. 
the effects of this have been borne out in a range of quite specific impacts. For instance, it turns out that 30% of the trade for seaborne jet fuel passes through the Red Sea route, meaning restrictions on shipping there turn into restrictions on jet fuel availability and thus start to put cost pressures on airlines and therefore eventually on the price of airline tickets. Jet fuel prices have already started rising over the last month after a year of continual decline. But this story isn't just about oil or its related products. It isn't the familiar tale of an oil price shock we're used to from the 1970s, when the OPEC cartel of oil-producing countries cut production and forced oil prices up across the globe. Per unit of gross domestic product, oil matters less to the world economy now than it did in the 1970s, since, for example, natural gas and renewables have become more integral to the economy, and at the same time, oil consumption has become more efficient. There has been a notable global swing away from the Middle East as the centre of the oil industry, as, since the end of 2019, the United States itself has become a net fossil fuel exporter thanks to the shale revolution in states like Ohio. All this is to say that surges in global oil prices and changes to global supply will not have the same impact they did 50 years ago or even five years ago. The knock-on effects today are far more diffuse and are appearing alongside a host of other price shocks to impact the cost and availability of a range of goods all over the world. The obvious cost for finished goods, the stuff we see in the shops, comes in two parts. First, the immediate fallout of this recent conflict is that insurance costs have skyrocketed and increasingly shipping companies are spending on their own expensive private defence contractors to try and guard against Ansarala attacks. And second, if companies simply decide to avoid the route through the Suez Canal altogether, they typically face an extra 10 days or so shipping time, adding to fuel costs and delays on the routes around Africa from Asia into Europe. Producers like Tesla and Volvo have already announced they will be pausing production at their European factories due to difficulties in obtaining parts from Asia. It's not hard to see how these impacts begin to ramp up inflationary pressure on the wider global economy. As covered previously on Macrodos, we've already seen a number of similar trade disruptions over the last 12 months or so. The Panama Canal, which typically transports around 5% of global trade, has seen its total volumes of trade fall by a third over the last year. As the International Monetary Fund pointed out in a recent blog, the great climatic cycle of El Niño has compounded with a changing climate to produce a disastrous drought across Central America, resulting in reduced water volumes in the Panama Canal and restrictions on the number and size of ships it can carry. When put together, these conjunctural trade crises are adding up all over the world to significant impacts on inflation. The $500 increase in average shipping container costs in December was the largest ever monthly rise, with average shipping container prices from Shanghai to Europe more than doubling. With the cost of transporting goods rising and firms seeking to maintain their profit margins, the cost of the rest of us will start to rise too. The International Monetary Fund's research last year found that a doubling of shipping freight prices leads, over a year or so, to a 0.7 percentage point increase in global inflation. Now this may not sound like too much, but when most central banks set a target of only 2% inflation, it's a very significant impact. Only in the last couple of years, where inflation has shot up to double figures in some countries, does it look less dramatic. So we ought to expect disruptions today to already be feeding into price rises over the rest of the year. And the longer these disruptions continue, the more serious the eventual macroeconomic impacts. 
These geopolitical shocks and the climate shocks work together. For example, as restrictions in the Asia-to-Europe seaborne trade have kicked in, many traders have started switching to air transport to avoid the delays involved in sending goods around the Horn of Africa. Rising fuel prices start to make this less economical, but there's a significant geopolitical risk on the Asia-Europe route, as pointed out recently by Jacob Shapiro from Cognitive Investors. With Russian airspace largely closed due to the ongoing war in Ukraine, flights are redirecting over the southern Caucasus. But it's here that Azerbaijan and Armenia were, until late last year, directly involved in an armed conflict, Azerbaijan ethnically cleansing 120,000 ethnic Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh last summer in a terrible act of international violence that seems to have largely gone unremarked in the West. Any flare-up of that conflict, currently paused, could result in airspace closures and further threats to trade. The point here is that the vulnerabilities compound, and that once you have a world subjected to potentially violent shocks from the environment itself, these vulnerabilities are always at risk of amplification. It's because the Panama Canal is still also severely restricted by drought that the Suez situation becomes even more urgent. El Nino is, in effect, a force multiplier for the Houthi campaign. Throwing the risk to air routes, or to the Straits of Malacca in the South China Seas, and the bit has to be that shortages, and therefore inflation, will one way or another tick upwards over the rest of the year. Almost none of this has anything whatsoever to do with interest rate rises that this or that central bank decides to implement. But given that the major central banks have to look like they're doing something, even when it is, at best, redundant and at worst actively harmful, we can expect interest rates to continue to remain high, and most likely rise again before the end of the year. The breakdown of the globalised world, on one side through geopolitical conflicts and, more fundamentally, on the other through environmental crises, means that the end of the last 40 years of cheap goods, cheap commodities and falling interest rates. This epochal shift has been a key theme of Macrodose over the last year, and it will continue to be over the coming months. If you're keen for a deeper dive on how these different crises are connecting and shaping our global economy, Keep an eye on our YouTube channel for that roundtable with Raj Patel and Jason W. Moore I mentioned in the introduction. On to our second story today. Will President Biden finally crack down on food profiteers? A recent report in the New York Times has shown that the Biden administration in the US is looking to take action on profiteering by US food suppliers, following a report by the President's Council of Economic Advisers on food price rises and sky-high supplies profits. It won't have escaped shoppers' attention, either in the US or across the world, that for all the talk of the end of inflation, food prices have continued to rise – the New York Times reports that, quote, economic research suggests that the cost of eggs, milk and other staples, which consumers buy far more frequently than big-ticket items like furniture or electronics, play an outsized role in shaping Americans' views of inflation. Those prices jumped more than 11% in 2022 and 5% last year, amid a post-pandemic inflation surge that was the nation's fastest burst of price increases in four decades, unquote. The same thing applies in Europe, where staples like butter and eggs remain hugely more expensive today than two years ago. And those prices are continuing to rise, even as energy costs have typically fallen. Food price inflation across the EU is well above the official headline rate. 
The reason for this is that the headline rate of inflation is based on a so-called typical basket of goods, which is meant to show the average price rise across a country or a group of countries like the EU. But this average includes, for instance, the average spending on a new car, or a new television, or even private education, which is a fraction of the total cost reflecting the fact that most people either rarely or never buy these things. The result is that if something falls in price that you don't buy very often, like a new TV, this will contribute to inflation falling overall, reflecting the average consumption of new TVs. But what you will see in the shops could well be a lot of things you have to buy all the time, like basic foods, still rising rapidly in price. What you will experience as a consumer is a much heavier squeeze on your earnings than the headline official inflation measure suggests. So it's completely understandable that whatever the headline figures say, the real experience of price rises is that everything important is still more expensive than it was and still rising in price. And on the backs of this, some very large suppliers who dominate the supply chains of those essentials are doing very well indeed. Now, this doesn't mean that the typical farmer in Europe or the US is raking in the cash. Far from it. As the protests across Europe suggest, farmers are getting squeezed. But agribusinesses that can supply the seeds or feed for animals or other essentials are doing very well. As Niall Glynn discussed in detail on Macaros back in October, the four companies that control 70% of the global food market made record profits over 2021 to 2022. And continued disruptions to supply across the globe means that they are likely to continue to do well, from the impacts of climate change to the effects on food prices from geopolitical shocks like the Red Sea attacks. Some countries are responding very directly to this. India has banned the export of certain grades of rice, as harvests there have been hit over the last year by El Niño and climate change. Now, that's understandable from India's point of view, but reduces supplies globally, contributing to price rises. The question of food sovereignty is going to move centre stage over the next few years, as globalised supplies of food are disrupted and we are all confronted with the collective need to manage and plan supplies of essentials far better than we are actually doing. What we're seeing so far from various Western governments is some distance from this, either panicked reversals of environmental protections allegedly to support farmers, as in Europe, or, as in the US, reaching for the idea that properly enforcing competitive rules is all that is needed to keep prices low. But the US presidential election, due later this year, is starting to concentrate minds in Washington by the looks of things. Faced with the prospect of a single-term presidency and the return of Donald Trump to the White House, perhaps Biden's economic advisers are starting to think a bit more radically about how to take on profiteering and turn the big promises of so-called Bidenomics into real-world gains for ordinary Americans. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.